This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. So glad that we get to spend this time together in, in, in God's Word. And today we're going to obviously be in the, uh, in the Gospels. And if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we'll be in, especially in, in the book of Luke and uh, John. Today, today I, I want you to follow me back in time before there was Easter, before there, there were any churches, even before there were any Bibles. This was a time in history where there were simply a couple of dozen, mostly Galilean men, but a few women as well, who, who found themselves wrestling with feelings of mistrust, uh, distrust, and probably even a little bit of disgust. And to be very direct with you, I'm not going to try to pull the wool over your eyes today. Let me just be very direct. My reason for wanting to take you back to that time, because in that moment before the first Easter, I think we find the most compelling reason why, if you're not a committed follower of Jesus, you should consider becoming a follower of Jesus today. Not, not tomorrow. Today. Or if you have been a follower of Jesus, but have wobbled a little bit in your walk with Him, this journey back to that time before Easter gives you a powerful reason why recommitting yourself to Jesus today makes all of the sense in the world. Let's begin our journey. We begin on on the Friday that we now call Good Friday. It's late afternoon. Jesus has been crucified. He's taken his last breath. Jesus is dead. Right before the evening sun disappears below the horizon, two men named Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they were religious leaders, but they were also businessmen. With a very unusual request, they go to Pontius Pilate, the ruler in charge, and ask for permission to remove the lifeless body of Jesus from the cross. Now, victims of a Roman crucifixion were typically left on the cross to rot. They would be there day after day in the hot sun. The stench would at times be almost unbearable. And and factor in a a detail, a a, a historical detail, that that during the rule of, of Titus, it said that the Romans crucified up to 500 people per day. This went on for several months. So imagine the stench along the high traffic areas, which is where the Romans liked to crucify because as people walked by high traffic areas, they saw all of the people on the cross. That made a statement, you don't mess with Rome. And something else that's not often brought out on a, on a Sunday like this is that the goal of crucifixion wasn't just death. There were much easier ways and much quicker ways and and, and, and less expensive ways to kill a man than, than crucifixion. Rather, part of the goal of crucifixion was to take away from the families the dignity of a proper burial. So what the Romans would do, they would leave the bodies up on the cross for long periods of time, and then after the bodies were well into the stage of decomposition, and after the vultures had done their work of picking the flesh off the bones, 
the remains would be loaded onto a cart by some Roman slaves and dumped in an undisclosed place for animals to finish consuming. The families were never given the dignity of a proper goodbye. But on occasion, for the right price, for the right person, the remains of a crucified body could be purchased and and given a proper burial. And, And these two prominent leaders, Joseph and Nicodemus, they risked their reputation because this was indeed a risky move on their part. They purchased the rights for the body of this controversial rabbi named Jesus. After retrieving the body, the, the two men, and more, more, more than likely along with some assistance from their servants, they prepared the body for burial according to Jewish customs, which would be to anoint and embalm the body with spices, and then they would place it in a cave renovated to serve as a tomb, which would then be sealed with a large stone. And the plan down the road for a body that had been placed in a cave or a tomb would, would be that months later, sometimes three or four months, sometimes one, two, or three years later, the tomb would be reopened, the bones of the deceased would be removed and placed in an ossuary. And since we don't use this word very much today, an ossuary was basically a bone box. Thousands of ossuaries have been discovered in that part of the world. Today we keep people's ashes. Back then they kept people's bones. But Joseph and Nicodemus felt that the least they could do was to provide Jesus with a proper burial. So so with the sun starting to set, and therefore in a bit of a hurry to do this before the sunset, which according to Jewish customs would have made them unclean if they would have done this after sunset, they quickly applied spices to the body, placed it in the tomb, sealed the opening with a large stone, and headed to their separate homes. Now, have you ever stopped to think how Jesus' death affected some notable people that the Bible talks about? Well, first of all, around 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem in in the eternal city of Rome, the death of Jesus didn't even move the needle with Emperor Tiberius Caesar. He basically had little idea and really didn't care what was happening in, in Judea, a place that was under his rule, yet he considered it to be the armpit of the Roman Empire because to him this was a place for troublemakers. He tried to stay away from there. So the death of Jesus had little immediate impact on Tiberius Caesar. Another man that you've heard of, Saul of Tarsus, who who a little bit later on would become known as the Apostle Paul. But during the crucifixion, he was more than likely a couple hundred miles north of Jerusalem preparing some sort of post-Passover statement that would no doubt include a phrase to the effect of good riddance. At that time, he felt Jesus was nothing but trouble, and so his death probably put a smile on his face. Another man named Thomas, whom later would earn the unfortunate nickname of Doubting Thomas, has fled the city of Jerusalem altogether. Peter, James, and John and and the rest of the disciples were huddled together trying to figure out what to do with their lives. Now, Peter was thinking about returning back to the family business. It was a fishing business, and he was considering that. Matthew, the former tax collector, probably had no job prospects because he had burned his bridges behind him. John, Jesus' closest friend, was kind of in a daze trying to figure out what had just happened. He didn't know what he would do either. And then in another part of town, we had a group of 
brokenhearted women that had gathered together, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, who was in full-blown despair at, at what she had just witnessed. Her innocent son. Can you imagine witnessing this, seeing this? Her innocent son had just been brutally murdered. So around the known world, from Rome to Judea, there were all kinds of emotional reactions from disinterest, Caesar, to confusion, to to joy, to sorrow, to fear, to women who were brokenhearted. But one reaction that we don't find anywhere in Scripture. One reaction that we don't find in history is that we don't find a group of people saying, you know, we need to honor Jesus and and take up his torch, and carry on his teachings, and and spread the Jesus movement. Nowhere do we find anyone before that first Easter that wanted to keep the dream alive. Because they were thinking, you know, if Jesus couldn't keep himself alive, what what hope did they have of keeping his movement alive? And besides that, why bother? Jesus' ministry did not center on some new ideology or call for social or, or religious reform. Jesus' life and ministry was not like the civil rights movement. It wasn't like even the Reformation. Jesus didn't fit the mold of a social activist or a religious activist. Now today, uh, social activists uh, many times attribute their movement to Jesus. But Jesus did not live his life rallying support, saying, well, we need to take our country back. We need to get the right officials elected. We need to kick out the hated Romans. We need to build a wall or we need to tear down a wall. We need to fight against taxes or fight for or against Gentiles being led into our country. Jesus didn't come to reform anything. Rather, Jesus came to replace something. He came to replace the old order of animal sacrifices that had been unable to take the sin out of our hearts and unable to bring forgiveness. And when you think about it, Most social movements are initially led by a leader with a message that appeals to outcasts or or the disenfranchised. And and when the leader dies, their, their followers take up their cause because they believe in the message and so they try to keep the teaching alive. And one would just naturally assume that that would have been the case with Jesus. That's not what happened. Jesus' followers ran, scattered, and hid. And have you ever wondered why the disciples before that first Easter didn't plan to take up the torch and carry on with the Jesus movement? Well, just think about it. One of the reasons was because Jesus' message was not a popular message. Read the Gospels. Jesus' message didn't appeal to very many people. It wouldn't have appealed to you either. I mean, here here are a few things that Jesus said. Jesus said, pay your taxes. Would you keep a movement alive over that message? Well, our dead leader said, pay your taxes, so I'm going to carry the torch. I don't think so. Here was something else that Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Now, what do we say today? Don't let them run over you. Jesus also said this, lust equals adultery. Ouch. I mean, the law in the Old Testament said adultery meant sleeping together, but Jesus in the New Testament said adultery was just thinking lustful thoughts. Not a message too many of us would want to carry on for a dead leader. Jesus also said, if someone hits you, turn the other cheek. 
I mean, we're like, are, are you kidding? You'll be hearing from my attorney. Jesus said, if someone asks for your coat, hey, go ahead and give them the shirt off your back. He said, you need to forgive this person who hurt you, not just once or twice or three times, 70 times seven. So I'm telling you, Jesus teaching wasn't very popular. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus was preaching, and as a pastor, I've tried to, I've tried to imagine what would happen if, if that would take place here, but, but he was preaching, and the crowd didn't like the message. They started just walking out. And his disciples, his best friends, even started second-guessing Jesus, and, and Jesus sensed that, and he turned to them and said, guys, you're thinking about leaving me too, aren't you? And it was like busted because they were thinking of leaving him. So Peter and the rest of the boys did not choose to follow Jesus because of what he taught. The, the truth is they chose to follow Jesus in spite of what he taught. But now Jesus' death had them totally confused because after three years they had actually come to think that he was the Messiah. And everybody knows that the Messiah couldn't be killed, but he had been killed, which must have meant then that Jesus was not who he said he was. And, and the assumption was with everybody that, that Jesus would stay dead, which means that nobody on that Sunday morning was standing outside of the tomb counting down ten. Nine, eight, seven. No. Dead people stay dead. And furthermore, it was a given that this little fledgling Jesus movement would also die with him. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea on Friday evening, they prepare his body, they embalm his body with spices, believing he is going to stay dead. Well, in a very insignificant detail that probably interests only me or other people with a warped sense of humor like me, but after the two men had anointed his body with spices, I just have to crack up there in Luke chapter 24, verse 1. There's a little uh, obscure detail that's just awesome. But it says on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, listen, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Took the spices. Now, now, I guess the women decided they better go and re-anoint Jesus' body for burial. They figured the men hadn't done it right. And, I mean, I don't know what else you can get out of this, but, and ladies, don't say amen to this. This would be a really poor time to say amen to this, but, but I guess in all honesty, we men do struggle doing things the right way the first time, so that's why, ladies, you have to go back and reload the dishwasher. You've got to refold the towels. You've got to redress the children and, and even redress some of us that can't understand that there are certain color combinations that just look hideous together. So, so the ladies go to re-anoint Jesus body for permanent burial, and, and actually probably what happened is uh, well, Joseph and Nicodemus, of course, by law, had to get this done by sundown. They were rushing around, and they, they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean because, again, they were religious leaders, and, and they were probably trying to get it done by sunset. And the, so the ladies probably just wanted to make sure that the body had been properly embalmed. Uh, again, off subject. But as we look at this account, it's pretty clear that when Jesus uttered his last words on the cross, when Jesus breathed his last breath, when Jesus slumped over completely lifeless, when his followers anointed his body for permanent burial, there was the expectation that Jesus would stay dead. 
And so at that moment, those who once believed him more than likely stopped believing. Those who once hoped, once hoped more than likely stopped hoping. Everyone scattered, and the Jesus movement essentially died when Jesus died because Jesus was the movement. From the perspective of the Romans, the, the, the gods had spoken. From the perspective of the Jewish temple leaders, Yahweh had spoken. In fact, and, and, and this was unprecedented, but the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders had actually worked together to rid themselves of this troublemaker. So the potential crisis of an uprising with Jesus and, and his followers had been averted. The, the so-called miracle worker, the storyteller from Nazareth, was dead. And now everything could go back to the way it was before. So, Pilate packs his bags. He gets his wife settled in their carriage. He's more than ready to get out of Jerusalem and get back to his beach home in Caesarea by the Mediterranean Sea, away from the noise, away from the noise and especially away from the stench of the city of Jerusalem. Now, what I want us to do, I want us to pause. And if possible, I want us to go into a split-screen mode. Now, some computers and tablets, you can actually divide the screen, have a split screen in two. So let's do that this morning. On the left side of the screen, I want you to freeze the scene that we've been talking about. Jesus is dead. He's died on the cross. His body has been removed from the cross, anointed, embalmed, now buried. But on the right side of the screen, let's fast forward the story 350 years. And, and, and I want us to go from, from that Friday evening after the crucifixion to this date in history, February 27th, the year 380. Again, about 350 years after the crucifixion. Now, on that day, February 27, 380, the emperor of Rome was Emperor Theodosius I. He issued a decree called the Edict of Thessalonica. Now, what was the Edict of Thessalonica? Well, this was an edict that made Christianity the official imperial religion of the Roman Empire, which meant that no more tax dollars would go to support the pagan temples or the pagan priesthood. Rome in the past had given tax dollars and, and uh, to these pagan religions for, for years, for decades. But this edict of Thessalonica ended all of that, made Christianity the official imperial religion of Rome, which was a big shift from what Rome had done. Now, now track with me. If that's all we would know, and, and, and if we would jump if we would go to this side of the screen jesus was dead buried his movement was basically dead in the water but then we look to the right side of the screen there and, and see the edict of, of, of thessalonica where, where christianity became the imperial religion overall we were just wrong wait 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 Jesus was crucified, he was buried, his movement died with him, but now you're telling me, 350 years later, that Jesus has replaced the Roman gods, and this Jesus religion is now the official religion of the Roman Empire? I mean, this man wasn't 
Roman. He never stepped in foot in Rome. And yet you're telling me that this crucified dead man has just replaced the entire pantheon of Roman gods? Is that what you're telling me? Yes. That's exactly what happened. Keep on tracking with me. Let's fast forward even more. Let's fast forward another 1,700 years, which brings us up to today. And today, you know, we can circle the globe and find crosses in every culture, culture that speak different languages. But what's interesting is that these crosses are no longer a symbol of suffering and shame. Rather, these crosses represent the hope and the salvation of Jesus. Now, here's my point. If that's all you knew, if all you saw was the split screen... And all you knew that Jesus was crucified by Rome and the Christian movement dead in the water. Yet 2,000 years after that, hundreds of millions of people in every nation on the planet gather not just on Easter, but they gather every week to recognize and celebrate the life of Jesus. If you just saw the split screen, the left and the right, what is the question that begs to be asked? And while you're thinking about that question, I want you to use your imagination. Imagine you're walking through a park and you notice a cute little girl, maybe three to four years old, sitting with someone you assume to be your mother. And as you walk by, you comment to the mom and say, oh, what a cutie. And, and her mom smiles at you and says, thank you. I, I'm so lucky to still have her with me. And she looks down and kind of strokes her daughter's hair and then looks back up at you and says, You know, last year my daughter was swimming in a pool and I wasn't paying attention to her. And I was just looking at my phone and, but all of a sudden I looked into the pool and I saw my daughter floating upside down and she wasn't moving, wasn't breathing. And I pulled her out and I called 911 and, and the paramedics came and they feverishly worked on her. But after what seemed like an eternity, they said, I'm sorry, we couldn't bring her back. She's gone. But, but then imagine that the mom hesitates and, and you're wanting to hear more, but she's so overcome with emotion and, and she stops talking, looks down at her little girl and again brushes her hair out of her face and she's too emotional and can't finish the story and just kind of leaves, leaves you hanging. Now, what's the question that would be on your mind? Well, it, it would be, lady, what happened? I mean... Come on, lady, fill in the gap. You left out the most important part of the story. The the, the girl was fine, went swimming, something happened, pronounced dead. But that cute little girl, is there alive? What happened? Please fill in the part of the story that's missing. And when it comes to the story of Jesus, the same question begs to be asked. What happened? There's got to be something between The two sides of the split screen. There was Jesus who was crucified, embalmed, buried, followers scattered. The movement essentially died. But today there are millions. In fact, the estimate I read this past week is that there are 2.2 billion of us that would gather on this day celebrating Jesus. What happened? What happened between the crucifixion and today that brought about a growing movement that encompasses a third of the world's population? There has to be more to the story. And there is. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us what happened. Let's just read from John's account. John 20, verse 1, it says, early 
on the first day of the week, first day of the week was Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So what happens? Well, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, so that would be John the Beloved, so Peter and John. And here's what Mary assumed had happened to Jesus' body. She said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Mary was not thinking for one second, he's resurrected. No, she says, Peter and John, somebody that is mentally sick, and she had to be thinking this, that's deranged, has robbed the grave. It's obvious in this verse that she expected Jesus to do what dead people do, and that's stay dead. Well, bouncing over to Luke's account in Luke chapter 24, verse 11, it says, but they, again, talking about Simon, Peter, and John, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So so their reaction was basically, ladies, you're full of it. You you ladies are confused. And and in those days, uh, this this is fact. Women were not allowed to serve as witnesses in the court because they, they were considered untrustworthy. And so, so, so Peter and John basically said, ladies, that, that right there is the reason that we don't trust you as reliable witnesses. What you're saying is hogwash. Actually, they, they use the word nonsense. But what I find interesting is that Peter and John were still curious enough where they decided to go check out the tomb for themselves. And in verse 3, John chapter 20, it says this, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple, again John, outran Peter, kind of embarrassing there. Reached the tomb first. A little interesting detail. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. But again, another interesting detail. Did not go in. So John was faster, but he was not braver. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And this next line is one of the most powerful lines in the entire Bible. It says, he saw and believed. What did he believe? Well, it finally clicked with him what Jesus had been trying to tell them. Jesus had been trying to tell them that the temple would be destroyed, but it would be rebuilt in three days. It finally clicked with him that Jesus was referring to himself. And of course, over the next 40 days, Jesus would appear to over 500 different people at different times, proving that he indeed was alive. So, what did this do to the disciples who had basically given up hope? What did this do to the disciples who had scattered and decided to go back to their old jobs? What did this do to the disciples that had to be thinking, you know, we've been duped for three years? Well, those, that, the resurrection caused these men and women to re-engage with the message and the mission of the Lord. The resurrection made the difference. The resurrection connected the split screen. The resurrection solves the mystery of what happened between a crucified and dead, buried Jesus and the fact that today 2.2 billion of us are gathered celebrating a risen Savior. The resurrection gave hope. 
The resurrection gave them a reason to live. The resurrection gave them a reason to keep the message of Jesus alive. And the Apostle Paul summarizes everything I've said far better than I could ever say it. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, if there's been no resurrection, my preaching, my message today, plus our whole Christian belief system, our coming to church on Easter or any day, if Christ has not been raised, then Christianity is a sham, and your faith is empty. That the Christian faith, the church, the Bible, everything we hold dear to us all rises and falls. It's all held together, according to the Apostle Paul, by one single event, which is the resurrection of Jesus. So again, what happened? What happened in the gap between this and this? What happened right there? Well, Easter happened. The resurrection happened. Jesus rose from the dead. And really, the resurrection of Jesus is um, not just one of many Bible stories. The resurrection of Jesus is the story. Apart from the resurrection, there would be no story. It's his story. There would be no story worthy of making it into the history books. I mean, think about it. How, How many people were crucified or killed by ancient Rome. We really don't know, but thousands upon thousands. Can you name one of them? Maybe you say, okay, Spartacus, simply because you've seen a movie about him. Spartacus led a huge slave rebellion and threatened the Roman Empire, but of course was eventually crushed by Rome. And Jesus, without, without the resurrection, would have had maybe three or four sentences in the ancient writings of the Jewish historian Josephus, or a couple of lines mentioned by lesser-known Roman writers such as Tacitus or Suetonius. But the resurrection is what connects the screens. That's what fills in the gap. It explains why the early church survived the persecution and the cruelty where they were given ultimatums, recant or be thrown into the arena with the wild animals, or, or recant or you will be burned at the stake, recant or you will have your eyes poked out, or recant you will have your limbs cut off. The resurrection explains the bravery of Jesus' followers. The resurrection also explains why Rome embraced a crucified person as their Lord. It explains why a crucified Galilean is worshipped by one-third of the world's population today. What happened? Easter happened. Jesus rose from the dead. But The resurrection of Jesus solves another great mystery as well, the mystery of eternity. It answers the question of what happens after we die. The reason it solves this mystery is because the only person who ever spoke with certainty and authority and experience on the topic of death and eternity was Jesus of Nazareth. He can say, I've been there, done that. And Jesus, through John... His closest friend who, uh, who beat Peter to the empty tomb says this in a verse that's so beautiful, a verse that you all know. For God so loved the world. What a beautiful verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son or his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What a beautiful 
beautiful verse. Can we all say this together? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But John continues on and makes it even more clear in verse 17. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So in an unprecedented move, Jesus died so you don't have to. He perished and was lost so you don't have to be, so you don't have to perish and be lost. The crucifixion made absolutely no sense until Easter. And then it made all the sense in the world because it validated Jesus' claim to be the Savior of the world. It validated his authority to forgive sin, your sin, my sin. So if you're a follower of Jesus, and I realize that many of you are, If you're a follower of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus means that you have peace with God. It means that your sins are forgiven. It means that your past is under the blood of Jesus. It means that your eternity is in a place called heaven. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus' resurrection provides you with a reason to believe, a reason to follow, a reason to live, a a reason to commit to Jesus today. So as we close today, I, I want to extend an invitation to you. It's the same invitation that Peter, remember the one who denied Christ, but a few weeks after the resurrection would extend to the citizens of Jerusalem this invitation. I want to extend that same invitation. Peter said this in Acts 3.19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So if during this service you have felt God's Spirit stirring within you and you want to come to Him or you want to come back to Him, I want to invite you to express your faith to God through a prayer. And by the way, the the good news is that if some point in your past you lost faith, Maybe a tragedy happened and you, you just couldn't resolve the question, how, why would a loving God allow tragic things to happen in my family? But if because of certain circumstances you lost faith, do you know what? You have something in common with all of the first century followers. They basically lost faith when Jesus died. But the resurrection changed everything. And they came back just like you can come back to your Father in heaven. So this morning, I would invite you to pray a prayer similar to this. Make it from your heart. Make it with your own words. But it might go something like this. Heavenly Father, I believe who you are. I believe you sent your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. I recognize I've strayed from you, Lord, and I've wobbled, and but would you forgive me? And I accept you as my Savior. If you will pray that and sincerely mean that, Jesus will answer your prayer. So this morning, I'm going to just ask you to stand. Everyone standing, please. If God has been stirring your heart today, Remember, I I said 
I believe uh, our journey today is, provides us with a compelling reason why we need to do this today, not tomorrow. Today is the day. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and let's just prepare our hearts for prayer. As your heads are bowed, nobody looking, is there somebody that would just lift a hand and say, Joe, God has really been speaking to me today. Don't embarrass me. Don't come back to me. But would you just pray for me? Would you just lift a hand? Thank you. I see your hand and your hand and yours and yours and yours and yours and yours. Anybody else? Pastor, would you pray for me? God has really been speaking to me today. You know, here at this church, we have an open altar. You're welcome to come anytime. And this isn't the only way you can be saved, but it's a beautiful place because you can come and without being judged and have some people gather around you. And if at any time you would like to come and kneel here or grab the arm of the person by you and just say, hey, would you go with me? I need to pray. I want to pray. Would you just do that right now? But as we pray, would you just in your own words, from your own heart. Just give yourself to God. Father, thank you that you took the the split screen. You solved the mystery. Lord, thank you for dying. But thank you for living. Lord, thank you for your spirit that I believe is stirring our hearts today and God, thank you for the many hands that were raised and just saying, God's Spirit has really been speaking to my heart today. I pray, oh God, that in your own way, you would draw them, draw them to yourself. Father, I pray that right now, those that are hungry, maybe those who have never known you or those who have wobbled a bit in their walk with you and find themselves on this Easter Sunday just full of guilt because messed up. God, I pray that right now you would just offer the words that have come to me. Come to me, all of you who are full of sin. I will give you forgiveness. God, especially for those that are just feeling the need Lord, give them the courage to do that today. God, don't let us wait till tomorrow. And I know that's what the flesh says. That's what, that's what Satan says. Wait till tomorrow. You've got plenty of time. But Lord, your word also is very clear. While the Spirit is stirring, while the Spirit is drawing us, that's when we need to come. So Lord, I pray that there would just be a host of people right now Lord, whether it's here in this building or those that are watching the stream, those that are listening on radio, Father, I pray that I pray that today would be the day where we acknowledge you as our Savior. God, don't let us leave this building unchanged. Don't let us leave, Father, with sins that are unforgiven. Lord, we reach out to you. I pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, our forgiving Lord and Savior. 
our Lord and Savior who's coming again, our Lord and Savior who conquered death, our Lord and Savior who prepared the way through death so we don't have to die eternally. And everybody said, amen, amen. Before you go, before you go, look for Easter eggs. If, if you need to talk to someone just about a spiritual need, Pastor Jim's there. We've got other staff members. We would love to pray with you. In fact, I'm just going to camp out right up here. And if anyone wants to come and pray, you're welcome to come. God bless you. I proclaim to you, He is risen. Go in the power of His resurrection. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.